Tonight we continue our study of the righteous kings that we see in the Old Testament book of 2 Kings. So you want to take a copy of God's Word in hand and turn to 2 Kings chapter 20. It was a couple weeks ago that one of our pastoral fellows, Evan Cruz, took us through the first half of this chapter, and tonight we'll consider the second half. If you're using a Bible in the P-Rack, it's on page 328. We're looking at verses 12 through 21 this evening. So in this series, we're considering the life of Hezekiah, and then in the future, we'll look at the life of Josiah. Tonight, we're finishing the life of the good and righteous king Hezekiah, but we're finishing in an odd way. Um, We're finishing considering maybe his lowest moment, his most unrighteous moment that we have here. I think it's intentional that the compiler of the the book, uh, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has ordered these events in this way in order that we might see a greater truth from the life of Hezekiah. And we want to see that tonight. So let's ask the Lord's blessing on the reading and preaching of his words. So would you please pray with me again? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you don't leave us as we just sang, though we often have left you or that you will never leave us or forsake us. It is our desire that we would abide with you. Our Heavenly Father, we seek to abide in the word of your Son, and we need your Spirit's help for that. Help us to abide that we might love, trust, and obey. And so to that end, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing to you. And that it might be ministry to your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of God from 2 Kings chapter 20, beginning in verse 12 through verse 21. At that time, Merodach Baladon, the son of Baladon, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick, and Hezekiah welcomed them, and he showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. 
Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, Why not if there will be peace and security in my days? The rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Hezekiah was a great king. He became king when he was 25 years old. He reigned for almost three decades, about 29 years. And then here we have his death, saying that he slept with his fathers. That's the term for, for going to the grave. And then his son Manasseh reigned in his place. His son Manasseh was the worst king. Hezekiah, a great king. Manasseh, a terrible king. There the writer here in verse 20 points out to one of the great ways that just in general, not even with respect to religion, uh, just as a, as, a, as a magistrate, as a, as a king, as a monarch, how, how great Hezekiah was. So he points to one of his great accomplishments. There, look at verse 20. It talks about the rest of the deeds and said, he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city. So the city has city walls and one of the things that as a good leader for his people, he figured out how to connect a spring in Gihon into the city. And so he built a 1,700-foot tunnel that went under the walls of the city, under the city, connecting to this spring, bringing fresh water into the center of Jerusalem. It's quite a feat. One of the ways that they, the way that they did it is that they began tunneling on, on each end and then they met in the middle. And this tunnel still exists to this day. You can go and inside there are inscriptions ascribing the work to Hezekiah. And if you remember in 2 Kings 19, the city is under siege. And there's concern about the crops, but there's never concern about water. Because even though the city was under siege by Snacherib's army, there was this conduit bringing fresh water into a pool. It's an example of his greatness. But it's not just this, these things that he did for the good of the community. He was a, a great leader in the eyes of the Lord. He was a great man of faith. He was a righteous leader. We see in the story of Hezekiah, he is a man of holy, righteous zeal. As he ascends to the throne, he opposes idolatry and he removes the remaining high places. He cleanses the temple. He restores the worship of the Lord according to the law of God. He reinstitutes the Passover. He reorganizes the priesthood according to God's law. He was a king of holy, righteous zeal. He was a king of great faith, too. The Lord worked mightily through him, and the Lord worked on his behalf. 
We read in the previously and looked at the beginning of this chapter, he was deathly ill and he cries out to God and God hears his cry. Then, after that, when he, as I was just referencing, as Jerusalem is surrounded by the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, he cries out to God again and God hears his prayer and kills 185,000 of the Assyrian army overnight. He was a great man of faith. He is a man of holy, righteous zeal according to the word of God. He was a man who had faith like his ancestor David in a lot of ways. He loved the Lord. And though it didn't reach the, the heights that it reached under Solomon's reign, for the most part, God brought great prosperity and material blessing to the nation of Judah. But it was a flawed man. Despite his greatness, we see that he wasn't enough. He wasn't enough to avert the Lord's judgment against his people. Because he himself fell short. Here at the end of the way that his story is told to us in 2 Kings, we see the remaining corruption from the presence of sin in Hezekiah's heart. And we see the exile and God's great judgment foretold. It's there in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 20. That great judgment is coming. Because God's people have become indistinguishable from the fallen world and the pagan nations around them. And so they will be carried off and his own descendants will be carried off. And it would appear that the judgment is so severe that the Davidic line is cut off. That is coming. It's about 100 years after Hezekiah's life. He's a great king, but tonight we want to learn what we can from his great folly. So, three headings for us this evening. Verse 12, I want us to see Hezekiah's testing. Hezekiah's testing in verse 12. And then in verses 13 through 15, I want us to think about Hezekiah's failure. And then in verse 19, Hezekiah's need. Verse 19, Hezekiah's need. Verse 12, look back there with me. At that time, Merodach Baladon, son of Baladon, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and, and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. Here is the test that comes. Merodach Baladon uh, was the Babylonian ruler. Uh, he had ascended and descended a couple times. He had trouble with the Assyrian Empire himself. So he was a vassal ruler under the Assyrian Empire. Uh, Sargon II had, had basically squelched his rule and his prominence, but Sargon has died, and now the younger Sennacherib has ascended to the Assyrian throne. So this Babylonian king, 
sees an opportunity. He doesn't want to be under Assyrian rule anymore and domination. And so he's going around looking to make political allies, allegiances, to find other vassals of the Assyrian Empire who could join with him in a long-term revolt and overthrowing of the Assyrian Empire. And so on the occasion that they hear that Hezekiah has been healed of a great and terrible sickness and that there's been this great sign, he sends messengers. It could have been that he was waiting to find out. Maybe if the king of Judah was to die, he was waiting for his opportunity to come in and possibly conquer Judah and and build his alliance that way. But now that this great sign has been performed on Hezekiah's behalf, that God has healed him of a deadly disease, now he's saying, okay, well, let's build an alliance. So he sends a gift, and then it says there, you notice that he sends letters. So it had been these sealed letters where the, the, the secret alliance, the political game that was being played, that was coming together, his proposal was put to Hezekiah. So Hezekiah responds, and he welcomes the guest. It would seem that possibly some see that Hezekiah feels flattered that here is the, this royal uh, envoy that's come to him and is looking to have him come on his side. It's a testing. Hezekiah is being tested. And I say that with full confidence and clarity because that's what the Bible tells us about what is happening here. The story of the kings, we have it both in First and Second Kings. We also have it in First and Second Chronicles. So if you could, hold your place there in Second Kings chapter 20 and turn over to Second Chronicles 32, verse 31. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 384. I believe that's the right page. So Second Chronicles 32 through 31. Uh, chapter 32, I apologize. Verse, uh, chapter Verse 31, correct. All right, there we are. So the chronicler gives us a little more theological inter- interpretation about what's happening here in Second Kings chapter 20. And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to him to acquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. This is a testing of Hezekiah's faith and trust in the Lord. Now, it says that God left him. Now, what that that means is that Isaiah has had a presence in Hezekiah's reign. Isaiah is a key figure. He is the, the mouthpiece of the Lord to Hezekiah. But on this occasion, Hezekiah shows up, uh, Isaiah rather, shows up after the envoy has already arrived. And so that was the Lord's leaving Hezekiah to himself. Why? That Hezekiah might be tested in order that he would know all that is in his heart. The Lord knew what is in 
Hezekiah's heart, but in this testing, Hezekiah comes to know what is in his own heart. It is something to recognize and to note that here is a testing of his faith, not through the crucible of affliction. He experienced that in his sickness in the first 11 verses, but now it's in the crucible of prosperity, of blessing, even prestige, that now this Babylonian princess has come and they're seeking to join forces with him. It is an important reminder to each of us that it's not only in the hard times that your trust in the Lord, his word, his promises, it isn't just in difficult times that our faith is tested, but it is in times of prosperity, when things are going well, when it's blue skies, no traffic, and it seems like all's a go. That's when we often find out where our hope is placed, what our trust is in. Hezekiah fails the test. Now, there's something we, we see about the, the goodness of God in this. He is not a God who tempts. Now, Hezekiah is certainly tempted, but here we see how God uses the evil plans of, of, of men and even the schemes of our enemy for his purposes. It is the enemy who tempts, it is God who tests. We see that throughout the scriptures. You see it from the very beginning with Adam and Eve. They're in a, a time of probation. Obey the command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And if you are obedient, then blessing and reward. It was a testing in order that they might secure the blessed eternal life. Satan comes and use, uses that as temptation. But as a child of God, recognize that your heavenly father as a good father shaping you, molding you, conforming you more and more to the image of his son, designs testings of your faith. And they'll come in hard times and they'll come in good times. And it's for the proving of your faith and oftentimes that begins with the exposing of your blind spots, your sin. You hope in God, you trust in God, but there may be remnants in your heart and mind where you're still clinging to other hopes. And you're still looking to other things for support and strength. So the Lord, in His kindness to you, allows testing to show you your need for repentance and for growth. Verses 13 to 15, we see the failure of the test and what is revealed about Hezekiah. What particularly is his failure here? How did he fail this test? I think there's really two ways that stand out for us here. The first has to do is that this envoy comes from Babylon. 
And if you read the Bible from beginning to end, you're introduced to Babylon first in Genesis chapter 11, and then Babylon is there all the way in the book of Revelation. And so from our perspective, when we say, oh no, Hezekiah, you welcomed the guys in from Babylon, that's a problem. Hezekiah misses it. Isaiah, who's ministering during the days of Hezekiah, prophesies against Babylon. And in his prophecy against Babylon, particularly Isaiah chapter 13 and 14, he he paints Babylon as the anti-God nation. Because that is the roots of Babylon. It is in the Tower of Babel. It's there when the people come together after the flood and they say, let us build a tower to God. It was an act of defiance and saying, look at our greatness. Look at our goodness. Look at, we don't need the God of heaven. We can reach heaven ourselves." And this is who Hezekiah has welcomed in. As he's recognizing the coming threat to Assyria, Assyria has already conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, he now then looks to and welcomes the help of Babylon in this alliance. And it's tragic. God's people will suffer the consequences. Because in this event, Babylon gets a peek into the storehouses and the wealth of Jerusalem. And so while they begin with an alliance, it's a note. Let's go back to that temple and strip it of its gold and of its wealth and its resources. And so initially, what is this invitation becomes part of the downfall of Judah. He yokes God's people to the anti-God nation. That's the first failure of the test. The second failure is one of pride. Now, turn back to Second Chronicles, chapter 32, verse 24 and 25. Page 384 in the Pew Bibles. Consider how this is recounted here and interpreted for us. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he answered him and gave him a sign. First half of chapter 20, second half. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came upon him in Judah and Jerusalem. He did not make return according to the benefit done to him. God has heard his prayer, has miraculously healed him, has given this sign of his deliverance from this sickness to him. And Hezekiah, instead of being a man driven to gratefulness and who will never forget his utter dependence on God for the very next breath, begins to exalt himself. And it would seem that he got proud in his heart 
And maybe the idea is this, that, well, God healed me because he has great things for me. God healed me because of my greatness. After all, look around. What did he take the Babylonian envoy to see? He, he shows him silver and gold, spices, precious oil, imported spices and oil that have come from all over the known world. His entire armory. And then he has storehouses of all these things. Something got crossed in his mind, his understanding, and he has missed the point. His healing should have left him in a place of complete humble dependence upon the Lord. Instead, he's believed in something of his own greatness and he thinks it's confirmed by the possessions around him. And the world has a grip on Hezekiah. 1 John 2, 16 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, or it could be translated the pride of possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Instead of responding with humility, he looks at the greatness of his kingdom and he says, I must be pretty great. He's caught in what John Bunyan calls and Pilgrim's Progress, Vanity Fair. Remember the story of Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim is heading towards the celestial city. He's on the way to his king. He has faithful traveling with him and right on the road there, the journey there, they come across a town called Vanity Fair. John Bunyan says that it was the evil prince who put Vanity Fair right there on the path to the celestial city. And as you go into Vanity Fair, every day is the fair. Every day is the marketplace. And there you can buy and sell and get all of the world's goods. Gold, wealth, riches, food, Spouses, children, prestige, anything that the world has to offer is there for pilgrim and faithful to be diverted from the path to the celestial kingdom. Now, in John Bunyan's story, they, they resist. And part of what, what stands out is that they don't look like those in Vanity Fair, that pilgrim, he dresses differently. He's not up with the fashion of, of those who live for the possessions and the materialism that this world has to offer. And so he's persecuted, then in prison, and then brought to trial there in Vanity Fair. He will be delivered. But it is the picture here of what Hezekiah finds himself in. The Lord raises him up from his deathbed, and he takes a vacation in Vanity Fair. It shows the remaining corruption that remained in this great king's heart. That brings us to the end here. Verse 19 is where I want us to think first, is Hezekiah's need. We see his test. We see his failure. Now let's look at his need. Verse 19, Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word 
of the Lord that you have spoken is good. And then we're told of, of, of Hezekiah's inner dialogue. Why not if there will be peace and security in my days? Now this, this verse, uh, people aren't sure how to take it. Um, it would seem that, and this is, uh, I don't think it's a, a plausible reading, and I'll explain it in a second, but it would seem that Hezekiah says, whew, all right, I messed up big time, um, but at least these terrible things aren't going to happen in my lifetime. So, whew, not the case, I don't, I don't think. Um, first of all, uh, it says that Hezekiah says he thought, so this is something that Hezekiah shared, and I think he shared as a way of confession and a way of repentance. So turn to Second Chronicles again, verse 32, verse 26, this time. Page 384 in the Pew Bible. There it says, But Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. So, the moment Isaiah walks through the door and says, who was that? What did you show them? Hezekiah, I believe, is gripped with conviction. He recognizes his pride. He recognizes his failure. He recognizes that he has made an alliance with the enemy. He recognizes that he has not responded to God's kindness to him with repentance and humility. And so Hezekiah then painfully tells Isaiah, I showed him everything showed them all. And then Isaiah says, this will happen, but it won't be in your lifetime. And so when Hezekiah says that he was thankful it wasn't going to happen in his lifetime, it's acknowledgement of God's mercy to him. It's confession that he deserves to be taken out immediately. He has not been faithful. He has been boastful. But God will delay this judgment, though it certainly will come. It is his humility through repentance. So the story of Hezekiah ends here. Now what's fascinating is that the events of chapter 20 actually happen before the events of chapter 19. Chapter 19 is where Sennacherib is at the, the gates of the city. Hezekiah cries out to the Lord, the Lord delivers them. But the writer has added these two events, his sickness, healing, and then his response to the Babylonian envoy to close the story. He's done so intentionally. 
He's messed with the chronologically because he has a theological point to make. And that's okay, and that's good. Because see, if the story ended with Hezekiah gets 15 more years to live, and then the mighty deliverance from Sennacherib, then the reader might think, why the exile? The reader might think, here is David's descendant to come. But the first readers of this book would have been those who came back to Jerusalem from exile. And they would have picked up this book. And they would have read about Hezekiah's greatness, but they read about his folly here, the close of his story. And it was a a message to them that the king you need hasn't arrived yet. You're still waiting for him. That there is a king that you need to come and he's going to exceed the greatness of Hezekiah. He's going to exceed the greatness of Solomon. He's going to exceed the greatness of David, his ancestor. And that king, you know where I'm going. It's, it's Jesus. But just think about it. In his temptation in the wilderness, Satan comes to him and puts vanity fair before him and says, the whole world you bow down to me. No cross, but all the kingdoms. And Jesus says no. The true king expresses the true humility. Humbling himself. The world has no claim on him. He walks by faith. He walks in obedience. He's steadfast. I love the benediction. Oftentimes, I I, I close our service with this benediction. 2 Thessalonians 3, 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Hezekiah trips up and stumbles. He does well for so many years. But he falls short in his transgression. Jesus never does. He remains steadfast, steadfast all the way to and through the cross and the grave. He remains steadfast, unchanging, always consistent. The perfect king, the king that we need. There's a lot here that's helpful for us. I want us to take away a couple things. One, in respect to our leaders, particularly leaders in the church. And we can get more specific to pastors. I need to be humble and consistent. But I still have feet of clay. All pastors do. Our elders need to be humble and consistent and steadfast, but they have feet of clay. 
the best of men come short. So we don't make excuses for the sins of our leaders. But we do not lose faith in the one true and perfect king when we see the sins of our leaders. This is consistent throughout Scripture, especially we see it in the Old Testament. God's anointing coming on flawed men who walk with him, who trust him, but are clearly sinners saved by grace. So I would ask you that you would pray for me, you pray for Pastor Jason, pray for your elders, your deacons, your growth group leaders. Pray for parents in the home, all those whom God has called and placed in positions of leadership and authority. Pray that they would be humble. Pray that they would be steadfast like the Savior. And of course, that extends to the entire family of God. That we all are to resist pride. That we are not to define our lives according to our accomplishments or to our bank account or to the car that we drive or to our status on the campus or in academia or in the corporate world or at the Capitol. But we are to define who we are by who we are in Christ. And that is a wonderful place of constant humility. Because every time you recognize yourself as a man or woman, boy or girl in Christ, you're reminding yourself of your great need and constant need for his blood and his redemption, his forgiveness, his pardon, his righteousness, his spirit. Points us to humility. Galatians 6.14 Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Our only boast and our, the only boast we ever have is crucified Savior and His cross. We love the song uh, Rock of Ages cleft for me, the great line in it. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Let us look at the, the bad example we have in Hezekiah where he says, look at everything that is in my hands. Look at everything that is in my hands. And the Lord says, it could all go away tomorrow. That is not your worth. That is not your value. It is not in what you own and what you have. Those things are temporary. And the same thing for us. We may say, look at the gifts. Look at the things I bring. Look at the generosity that I contribute and care for others. Look at whatever it may be. And no, we all, it's not just ridding ourselves of our, of our unrighteousness, but our, our very good things and saying, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Let us recognize that there, this life is always a testing of our faith, isn't it? We're always in a spiritual battle. Our faith is always being tested. Hezekiah missed that. He saw 
this, this moment of being raised from his sickbed and he looked at the prosperity of his nation for the moment and he looked at, here's this other nation that's coming to want to partner with us. He missed, we're always in a spiritual battle. There's always a testing of our faith. Let his desire, consistency, and steadfastness that we see in our Savior, and let us recognize that our Heavenly Father is doing a good work in us. In this, James 1.3, For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. May we set our goals accordingly. May we make it our goal to be a steadfast and faithful people, consistent, day in and day out. That in the highs and the lows of life, we are walking in humble dependence, humble repentance, seeking the Lord and His will, trusting in His perfect King. Let us pray and ask God's blessing on the preaching of His Word. Our Lord and Savior, we thank you that you resisted the temptations of the evil one. That in your time of testing, you proved to be one fully allegiant to your Heavenly Father. That you truly delighted in the holy law of God. That the world had no grip on you. We thank you that you have rescued, rescued us out of the kingdom of darkness. We recognize the ways in which the world still seeks to grab our hearts and our minds. So would you deliver us from the desires of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, that we might walk in humble reliance on you, until we reach our reward in heaven. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.